Bibles to 1 Corinthians and chapter 2. 1 Corinthians and chapter 2. I won't be covering the whole chapter today. Now, I wonder, have you ever been talking to someone about your faith and you've been explaining to them about what we believe as Christians and they've They've responded with such disdain that it's made you feel very uncomfortable. Um, Because, you know, it's lovely when we talk to people and they're interested in finding out what we believe and they're open to discussing spiritual matters, but there's other people and they are just not open at all. And when you start to talk to them about what we believe as Christians, well, maybe it's because they've imbibed some kind of atheistic naturalism and they're just completely secular and they just respond with disbelief that you actually believe anything like that. The idea that you would believe in in a God that you worship, that you obey, is just nonsensical to them. Or maybe you start to talk to them about the values that we hold as Christians, how we ought to live our lives, and they respond with disbelief that you hold to such antiquated and outmoded values, and they're just scandalized by it. And whatever the circumstances, I imagine that most of us at some point or another have been at the end of, the receiving end of that kind of scorn and and shame. Well, I imagine that the Corinthians themselves would have endured similar kinds of scorns from their, scorn from their fellow Corinthians, whether it was Jews or Gentiles. Whenever they came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, they would have been scorned to some extent. And I'm not entirely sure why, but possibly what they may have done in response was to start to look at the the great leaders among them and in response to the scorn that they felt from the outside world they may have said to themselves well you know actually we've got some pretty wise people here amongst us we've got some pretty eloquent speakers amongst us and so they start to ally around certain prominent leaders and say you know I follow Apollos he is a really clever speaker he he's really got good understanding and you know he'll rival anybody in the world outside or other people will say you know I follow Paul or I follow Peter and they started to to band around specific individuals that they thought were just the answer to the world's criticism but Paul you know he's deeply concerned about this way of thinking as we've seen over the past couple of weeks because not only has that produced divisions within the church whereby they're they're trying to identify one person or another as the, the best person among them but it's produced a fixation on worldly values whereby they're no longer interested in what God values, but they're just falling back into that worldly way of thinking, evaluating people based upon you know, whether they're a good speaker or whether they're really intelligent, that kind of thing. And in the midst of all of that fixation on worldly values, Paul comes along and he tells the Christians that they've got to focus their eyes on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ because there at the cross all of our worldly ways of thinking get absolutely shattered. Uh, here we see that the triumph that God has won was not a brought, brought about through worldly success. The triumph that God brought about in his redemptive purposes was brought about through weakness and defeat and through shame and humiliation in the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into the highest place in glory, even though the world perceives all that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished to be shame and folly. And so as we move into chapter two, Paul continues his emphasis on this point, that God's wisdom is entirely different from the wisdom that the world tries to offer us. 
The values that the world holds dear, eloquence and intellect, are not the values that God holds to. And if the Corinthians then see how different God's wisdom is, then that's going to change how they treat one another. They're no longer going to be trying to elevate one person based upon their eloquence or one thing or another. And it will change how they are affected by the world's scorn. Because if they see that that God's wisdom is so much better than the world's wisdom, then they're going to be able to, to look at the scoffing world and say that actually we've got something much better. We understand God's true wisdom. So then, with that background in mind, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we shall read from verse 1. And I'm reading from the NIV. And Paul writes, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, And what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And this is God's holy word. And so in this passage, what Paul is doing is he is setting out before us how different God's wisdom is from the wisdom of the world. And that's why they shouldn't be trying to use worldly standards to try and judge who is wise and who is not, who is great and who is not. And so what Paul does in this passage is he demonstrates what the wisdom of God is really like. And in the first five verses, he uses his own preaching as the example When he preached the gospel to them at Corinth, he didn't do it in spectacular 
spectacular displays of greatness or wisdom, but he came amongst them and he preached the gospel of the crucified Lord. And he did it in weakness and fear and trembling. And then he goes on to explain that this wisdom from God is something which is actually hidden from unbelievers. He points out that this is especially seen in verse 8. If the world truly had wisdom, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The fact that they crucified him is indicative of the fact that they did not have true wisdom through all their learning and insight. And then in verses 9 through to 16, Paul explains that this true wisdom from God is actually revealed to us believers and it's revealed through the spirit of God. And if the Corinthians then took this to heart, then they wouldn't be trying to elevate one person over another and say, oh, look at this wise person, look at this eloquent person, because they would see that God's wisdom is the only wisdom that counts. And that's in stark contrast to the way the world thinks about things. So then let's think first of all about how Paul's preaching sets the pattern for the kind of wisdom that he proclaimed to them. And in his preaching, he he demonstrated when he came to them at Corinth, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 18, that when he came, he wasn't trying to impress them with worldly wisdom, but he came in a demonstration of God's power. And so he says in verse 1 that when he came to them, he did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as he proclaimed to them the testimony about God. Rather, he resolved to know nothing while he was with him except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, he wasn't trying to come up with some clever slant on Jesus the Messiah so as to make him more palatable to the people that he was preaching to. When he was preaching to the Jews, as he told them about a crucified Lord Jesus Christ, they would have laughed at him and said, no, when we look at the Old Testament, what we see is a triumphant Messiah who comes and he conquers his foes and he establishes his kingdom in power and glory. That's what we're looking for. And here you, Paul, you're coming along telling us that actually God has brought about his purposes through the death of the Messiah. That it's through his death that somehow God has accomplished his purposes. That's utter foolishness. And again, when he went to the Gentiles, he would have had the same problem because they were living under Roman authority. And for them, the the Roman Empire was a wonderful example of the success of the world. And Paul was coming along and saying, well, actually, God had brought about victory over death, brought about victory over sin and evil through the one who was crucified by Pontius Pilate, the Judean governor. And the Gentiles would have laughed at this and said, seriously, you expect us to believe that God has established his power, that God has established his victory through someone who was crucified by a Roman governor. And it looked like absolute foolishness. And in light of this scandal then, it's a wonder that anyone actually accepted this message. But Paul, you see, he wasn't interested in trying to make this gospel more palatable to the people at Corinth, whether Jews or Gentiles. He was interested in proclaiming to them exactly what had happened, what God had done, what God had done through Jesus Christ being crucified on the cross. And it was through that that God had conquered evil and defeated our sins and had reconciled us to God. And it wasn't some clever marketing pitch that Paul tried to spin. It was Christ and his death on the cross that he proclaimed. 
Poland says that when he came among them, he did it with great fear and trembling. I imagine to some extent that that's what we all feel when we proclaim the gospel, whether it's to friends or publicly. We do feel an extent of fear and trembling. But I imagine that actually Paul's greatest fear and trembling isn't because he's scared of how people are going to respond to him, but his greatest fear, what he trembles before, is, is that he proclaims the gospel accurately, that he proclaims the gospel in a fitting way, that he doesn't try and resort to his own wisdom because he was a very clever man, that he doesn't try to resort to making Christ more palatable because that's an inherent temptation that we all face. But he, he trembled then that at the thought that in his own weakness and fallibility, he would try and water down the gospel. And so before God in fear and trembling, he was eager to proclaim the gospel as it was. And so he says in verse four then that when he preached, it wasn't with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest in human wisdom, but on God's power. So he says he doesn't preach in wise and persuasive words. It's interesting, though, when you look at Acts chapter 18, most specifically when Paul preaches the gospel at Corinth, we read that he reasoned in the synagogues and he sought to persuade them. So what does he mean that he, he hasn't come to them with wise and persuasive words, yet when we look at Acts chapter 18, we do see that he's trying to persuade them by the truth. Because clearly... Paul does try to persuade people. He doesn't try to just bludgeon them with the truth and say, well, this is the truth. You better accept it. That's it. No, he seeks to persuade people. He seeks to demonstrate clearly to them through reasoning that the gospel is true, that it is what God's message of salvation actually is. But Paul's point is more about the method of his persuasion. He, he reasons from the scriptures. He seeks to persuade them from what God has revealed in scriptures. He seeks to persuade them from God's revelation. And he's not trying to be wise and persuasive in the sense of using clever marketing techniques. He's not trying to shy away from the offensive bits of the gospel so as to persuade them by the good bits and leave out the bits that might be more problematic. Because there are bits of the gospel that are really difficult and unpalatable at times. The idea that we are sinful. It's always temptation to water that down. The idea that we can only be reconciled to God through what he has done. That's a bit unpalatable. It's tempting to water that down. The idea that we can only be saved through a crucified Lord. Again, Paul would have been tempted to, maybe not, it's to go against that, but he would have been tempted to actually sideline that and say something which was wise and persuasive that would actually try and convince people and leave out the scandalous bits of the gospel. But Paul says to them that he didn't try to do any of that. And the reason why he didn't do that was so that their faith wouldn't be based upon Paul's clever marketing pitch but would be based upon God's power so that they would know that actually their conviction of the gospel, their conviction of the truth of what God had done was based upon God's work in their lives. Because you see, for Paul, the message of the gospel, the, the mode of preaching the gospel has to be consistent with the message of the gospel itself. The way you preach the gospel has to line up with the content of the gospel. And this is true in every aspect of life, isn't it? When we want to communicate the message, we've got to communicate it in a way that is consistent with it. 
So during the pandemic, for example, when we were faced with things that we'd never faced before in our lives, the government had to convince us the best they could that what we were facing was unprecedented and that we needed to do things that we'd never done before in our lives, lock ourselves up for months and ends, uh, to, to go about wearing face masks, to get vaccinated, to do all of these things. And so with utmost seriousness then, we would get these TV events where the, the Prime Minister would be there in seriousness with his Chief Medical Officer and the Chief Scientific Officer to communicate the message with utmost gravitas that we needed to take seriously. They communicated it through careful statistics and graphs that they presented to us to show the number of people that um, were getting coronavirus and the number of people that were getting vaccinated and hospitalizations and all that. So what they were doing was matching the seriousness of the message with the seriousness of the way in which they communicated it. It wouldn't have worked if they'd done a, a little skit or a little comedy sketch to try and to tell us about what we needed to do because that would have just made us disregard the message. It wouldn't have fit. And that's the same with the gospel itself. We need to present it in ways that fit with the gospel message. And practically then, for us that has implications, just as it had implications for the Apostle Paul. You know, Paul, he isn't saying that we shouldn't that we shouldn't persuade people or that we shouldn't think carefully about the gospel and reason with people. He's all for presenting the gospel winsomely and carefully. But at the point at which that leads us to sideline the offensive parts of the gospel, Paul is deeply concerned. Because then we've gone off track. Because as soon as we've watered down the offensiveness of the gospel, the, the scandal of the cross, then we've gone off track and we're starting to proclaim something which is merely based on human wisdom. And we mustn't compromise the gospel to make it more palatable to people. And sometimes the ways in which we do that are very subtle, actually. Because it's not that we deliberately distort the gospel but we downplay the offensive things and we emphasize the things that appeal to people, the things that will get people on our side. So, for example, we might present the gospel as the answer to people's felt needs. People feel a sense of uh, need for security. People feel a sense for uh, a need for transcendence and so on. And these things are true uh, and these things are right to communicate to people. But if we were to emphasize how the gospel satisfies our needs and thereby neglect talking about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, that would be an example of how we would water down the gospel. Other people, they emphasize the love of God. And that's right. It is important to emphasize the love of God. But some people will talk about the love of God so much and scarcely mention our sin or scarcely mention the cross. And what Paul would say is that if you want to talk about the love of God, you don't do it apart from the cross, you do it through the cross. Present the scandal of the cross and say that is how God loves you because he sent his son to die for you on the cross. And um, in various different ways we can seek to water down the gospel. Maybe we seek to emphasize the power of the spirit of God to change people's lives. And again, that's right. But if we were to do that to the neglect of emphasizing that the way lives are changed is through an encounter with the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, 
then again, we would be watering down the gospel. We would be resorting to wise and persuasive tactics to try and convince people. And Paul says that we just cannot do that. And when he came to the Corinthians, he wasn't try, trying to spin the gospel in a particular way. And by the way, all the things that I've mentioned are, are true things, things that are right to communicate in the gospel. It's just if you overemphasize them and neglect the cross, then that's a way of resorting to wise and persuasive tactics to try and win people apart from the power of God. So what Paul does is he proclaims the gospel in all of its scandal, in all of its offensiveness, so that if people are persuaded by it, then he can't say, oh, it was because of my clever persuasion. No, it was because the Spirit of God worked amongst you to convince you of that truth. And he, Paul, he never wants us to get away from this scandalous message of the cross because he doesn't want us to distort the gospel. And yet, as he goes on to explain in chapter 2 and verse 6, what Paul is proclaiming to the Corinthians, it's not actually foolishness. It's not stupid. What Paul is proclaiming is true wisdom. He says that we do speak a message of wisdom among the mature or the perfect. To be clear here, he's not talking about some special class of Christians. He's just talking about Christians. We are the mature. We are those who have come to uh, this clear understanding of God through the Spirit. And he'll elaborate on that further. But the wisdom that we have received is not the wisdom of this world. As he says in verse 7, as I've already drawn attention to, verse 7 and 8, rather, that um, if the rulers of this world had understood true wisdom, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That shows that for all of their wisdom, for all of their insight, they just completely missed the mark. How incredible it is that when God himself entered into our world, there wasn't wise and great people waiting for him. There, there wasn't a community of people that had gathered to herald his arrival. But he entered into this world in humility and shame and rejection. And the world, for all its wisdom and greatness, simply did not recognize him and hung him on a cross. If, for all, if their wisdom had, had been really worth something, then they would have recognized the Lord of glory. But as it was, they didn't recognize him. And it's important to note here that, um, that Paul isn't being anti-intellectual. He's not trying to say that we shouldn't use our minds, that we shouldn't think clearly. Paul was a very clever man. And you only have to look at his letters to see the depth of his insight and reasoning and how carefully he argues his points. But what Paul is against is the glorification of autonomous human reason. Uh, the glorification of human reason without any aid from God. The idea that people can, can just reason by themselves. They don't need God. They can just use their reasoning and their intellect in order to understand God and figure him out. And that's simply appalling to Paul. Because for Paul, God needs to reveal himself. Unless God reveals himself, then we can know absolutely nothing about God. We can't know anything of significance of God. Um, and so verse 9 then goes on to quote probably um, from Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 4. Uh, it's a loose quotation where Isaiah the prophet, he's thinking about the, the greatness of God. 
and the greatness of God's mercy towards us. Who is like our God? And Isaiah is impressed by, by this. And, and Paul picks up in this and talks about God's secrets, the things that God has in store for his people, things that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, that no human mind has conceived. And he says that these secrets of God are prepared for those who love him. And to the rest of the world then, these secrets are unknowable. They haven't been communicated to the rest of the world. They've been given to those who love God. And so what we discover here, as Paul discloses this to us, is that our God is a God who has mysteries, or to use a more common word, secrets. Our God is a God who keeps secrets. that He doesn't disclose to everyone, but discloses to his people whom he loves. What are these secrets? Well, these are the secrets that God has kept hidden from ages past and has not disclosed through human intellect and wisdom, but has disclosed to us, his people. The knowledge, for example, that God loved us before the creation of the world, before time began, as Paul talks about in verse um, 7. that God loved us before time began, before the world began, we wouldn't discover this through our own reasoning or intellect. God has to reveal that to us. This is one of God's secrets that he reveals to his children. And you'll not discover that through any amount of reasoning. Or the idea that God was reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ and that through his his death on the cross that God was actually accomplishing the greatest defeat of evil and that God was actually taking away our sins through suffering and death on the cross, you'll never understand that through human rationale and reasoning. That has to be disclosed to us. God has to tell us that's what he was doing at the cross, otherwise we'll never know. And that's one of the secrets that God reveals to his children. Or that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is seated at the highest throne in the universe. When we look around and look at the world around us and we see wars in Ukraine and see people vying for authority and power, and when we say that actually Jesus Christ is the one who is seated in the highest place in glory at the Father's right hand, then, well, that's, the, that's something that you can't perceive through human wisdom or rationality. That's something which revealed to us one of God's secrets that he reveals to those whom he loves. And so we see then that, that God reveals things to his children, to those whom he loves and those who love him, that cannot be understood through mere human reasoning. So it is in, in our human relationships as well. In our human relationships, we reserve secrets for those who are closest to us. Maybe it's a very close friend. Maybe it's someone that we love. And we disclose secrets to them. We say things to them that we wouldn't say to other people, precisely because there exists a relationship of trust and intimacy that doesn't exist with other people. And that is the kind of relationship that God has with us, that God reveals things to us that he doesn't reveal to the rest of the world. And so then, when people scoff at us and, and make fun of the gospel and treat the gospel in a condescending way, we have the ability then to actually 
stand firm and confident that even though the gospel might seem foolishness to other people, it is something which has been disclosed to us, what other people could never conceive of, what ear has not heard, what eye has not seen, what hasn't entered into human hearts, has been disclosed to us through the Spirit. So then Paul goes on to explain in verses 10 to 16 how it is that God reveals this wisdom to us. Because he hasn't revealed this wisdom to us through spectacular reasoning abilities, as if he has given us particular cleverness or intellect, but that God has revealed it to us, as he says in verse 10, by his Spirit. And this is why the wisdom from God is so different from the wisdom of this world. The wisdom of this world is based in human reasoning, trying to figure, everything's out by, th- figure everything out by ourselves without any reference to God or what he says. But the wisdom that is from God is revealed to us through the Spirit of God who communicates that to us. But how does the Spirit of God, how is it that the Spirit of God reveals this to us? Well, verse 10 then goes on to explain that the Spirit, who is fully God, is aware of the deep things of God. The Spirit of God knows the depths of of God's thoughts and intentions. And the Spirit of God then is the one that can reveal those thoughts about God. Paul gives an illustration of how this works in verse 11. He thinks of how we are the ones who understand ourselves. Other people looking on can try to surmise what we're thinking and feeling and what our true motives are, but they don't really understand us. Only the spirit of a person within a person really understands their thoughts and intentions and feelings and all of those things. And so Paul says, so it is with the spirit of God. No one truly knows the thoughts and intentions of God except the spirit of God. But hang on then, what if God gives us that spirit? What if he imparts that spirit to us? Well, if God does that, then we suddenly have insight into God's thoughts, into God's intentions, into God's feelings of love toward us, that we understand things about God that we could not otherwise understand. And so the spirit of God communicates these truths to us um, so that we can understand the things that God has freely given us, verse 12. And verse 13 then goes on to explain that Paul speaks these words of God, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. That is, the Spirit of God has made these truths communicable by the apostles. As they speak and tell us about God, they're able to communicate it in words. And thus Paul explains Spiritual with spiritual. Now that's an odd expression and there's various different ways of translating uh, translating that all with different um, degrees of merit. But I think if you look at the first part of verse 13, Paul is talking about the, the words taught, not by human wisdom, but by the spirit. And so explaining spiritual with spiritual, I think is best understood in the way the NIV has it. It's explaining spiritual realities, spiritual truths with spirit taught words. It's the spirit taught words that are enabled to be used by the spirit of God to communicate God's truth to us. But because those truths are only revealed through the spirit of God, verse 14 then goes on to tell us that those without the spirit simply don't grasp these things. They are foolishness to those who don't have the spirit. 
So when the Spirit of God reveals to us that Christ crucified is our only means of reconciliation, then the person without the Spirit considers this to be just a load of nonsense. They just don't get it. And Paul says that such a person simply cannot understand these things because they're discerned only through the Spirit. What does he mean when he says they can't understand them? Does it mean that people cannot understand the words that we're saying to them? That when we preach the gospel, that they just literally can't understand it? Well, I think obviously when we communicate the gospel to people, they understand it at one level. When we say to people that we are reconciled to God through the death of his son, they understand what we're communicating to them. They understand that much. But because they don't have the categories for it, it just doesn't make any sense to them. And at that level, it just, it, they just can't understand it. They just can't understand, well, well, why would it be that our sins are so bad that the Son of God has to die for us? Why would it be that we can only be reconciled through the sacrifice, the brutal sacrifice of the, the Messiah on the cross? Why would it be that it's through death that God reconciles us to himself? Why would it be that God accepts a sacrifice in place of us? It just doesn't make any sense. And so at that level, the things that are taught to us by the Spirit cannot be understood by those without the Spirit, not because it's just pure nonsense, but because they just don't have the categories to make sense of them. It doesn't make sense to people who do not have the Spirit. The, on the other hand, verse 15 describes the person that does have the Spirit. Such a person who has been given God's Spirit has been given God's wisdom to understand um, do you understand spiritual matters? To understand God truly? And so it says that such a person with a spirit makes judgment about all things. I don't think that means that we understand everything. Of course we don't understand everything. But it does mean that we, we do understand God truly. We don't understand everything about God. But when it comes to understanding what's true and what's false about God, we know it. And so we can actually evaluate what's, what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's false. We have a, a true spiritual understanding. And for such a person, then, we are not subject to merely human judgments. Uh, by this, I, I take it to mean that Paul is saying that other people will look on us and they'll see the way that we live our lives and they'll try to make judgments about us, human judgments, and say, well, that person's a bit mad. They're a bit extreme. Uh, they've gone a bit crazy with this, this gospel nonsense. Um, and Paul says that we're not subject to merely human evaluations. They don't actually evaluate us properly. We're not subject to such judgments uh, because they're not a correct assessment of who we are through the Spirit of God. And Paul concludes in verse 16 by explaining once again that this insight into God and his ways isn't because we are wiser or more intelligent than others, because the mind of God is incomprehensible. Who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? God's beyond our understanding. But Paul concludes with this decisive statement, but we have the mind of Christ. The Spirit of God is, has let us into these secrets. We understand Christ. We understand the mind of God itself, precisely because the Spirit has revealed it to us. Sometimes we find ourselves doing things that other people don't understand. Um, not just spiritual things, but just purely in terms of earthly matters. We do things that other people looking on, they just don't understand what we're up to. 
take, for example, me and my little fruit and vegetable patch out the front of my house. Now, if you watched me on a regular basis, you'd see me doing all kinds of strange things to it. One day, you would see me chopping up a, a lemon and throwing it on the, on the soil. And you'd be thinking, what is he doing with that lemon? And then another day, you'd see me chopping up garlic and throwing chopped garlic onto the garden. And you'll smell the stink and you'll think, what is he doing that time? And another time, you'll, you'll see me you know, getting coffee grounds, a mug of coffee grounds, and throwing it over the soil. And you think, what on earth is he up to? And you might think, well, he's, he's lost. He's, he's trying to go coffee, coffee beans or a lemon tree or something or garlic, and he just doesn't know how to do it. Actually, it's a long-running battle with a local cat that, that tries to do despite to my fruit and vegetables. But unless you've got that insight about what I'm actually trying to do, then you'll think I'm stark raving mad. So it is with believers. People um, on the outside can't truly understand us. The world looks on and thinks we're a bit mad for falling for the gospel. But actually... We have received the true wisdom from God through the Spirit. God has let us into his secrets. God has made us understand his thoughts, his intentions, so that the way we live our lives then might not make sense to the outside world, but it is the true wisdom to those who are mature, to those who have the Spirit of God. It's very important then for us to hear that, because when we discover what true wisdom is, then it stops us from elevating certain people to the level of, you know, greatness. Because God is the one who reveals himself to us. And in the church, we can't claim to be, you know, more intelligent than one person or another, because everything that we have is just revealed to us. Everything that we have is given to us. And so we don't discover anything about God through our intellect. That'll also stop us worrying about what unbelievers think about us. Because, you know, we've got the true wisdom from God. We don't need to worry if other people think that we're foolish. But before I, I wind up, let me just think for a second about how the Spirit actually communicates these secrets to us. Because it, it would be possible if you treated this passage in isolation to just think that the Spirit communicates these things to us through just kind of like internal speaking, as if the Spirit of God just tells us stuff directly, um, reveals stuff directly to us without the need for the Scriptures. But actually, what we see elsewhere in Scripture is that the way the Spirit of God communicates God's wisdom to us is through, as we read the Bible, that's how the Spirit of God speaks to us. Uh, then the Spirit of God takes what's written in the Bible and applies it to us, makes it personally real. So when we read in Scripture about the love of God, the Spirit of God takes that and applies it to our hearts. And, and then we say, yes, I know that God loves me. His, his Spirit is revealing this to me. So it's not that the Spirit of God reveals to us stuff that isn't in the Bible, but what the Spirit of God does, he takes what's written in Scripture and applies it to us and makes it personal to us. And that's the way the Spirit of God works. So then, the work of the Spirit of God is of immense significance to the believer because it lets us into God's secrets. Those outside might look on and think we're a bit mad, but God has revealed to us his secrets through the Spirit. We've entered into a knowledge that the world knows nothing about. And with that then, Paul concludes the chapter. And in the next chapter, he's going to return 
to the subject of these human divisions. Now, he's laid a foundation in this chapter for trying to do away with such divisions, because if he can show that we're all dependent upon God revealing himself through the Spirit, then there's no basis then for trying to say that one person's more clever in the church than another, or one person's more eloquent than another, because we're all just dependent upon what God reveals to us through his Spirit. So he's laying a foundation here, and what he's done in this chapter then is show us what true wisdom is, how it's completely different from the world's wisdom, because the world's wisdom, they look on... And they see folly. But the true wisdom of God centers on the cross. That's what we've centered ourselves on this morning. We've looked to the Lord Jesus Christ dying upon the cross, shedding his blood. Uh, and, and in these signs, in the bread and the wine that he gives to us, that people might look on and think that's really weird what they're doing, eating bread and drinking wine. But there's where all our hopes are based. That's what the Spirit of God has revealed to us. This is where we see the love of God. That there at the cross, God was doing the greatest thing that has ever been done in the history of this universe. That God interceded on our behalf and in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, took our judgment so that we could be reconciled to him and live forever for his glory. This is his secret that he's revealed to us through the Spirit. And this is what we rejoice in. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you and praise you that you have, through your spirit, let us into things that cannot be understood through earthly wisdom. So often we want to think,